0: Hey, it's Chris. Originally, I had intended on having a new episode out this week, but I just ran out of time. You see, over the last month, I bought a new house and my family and I have been moving from one house to the other. So with all of the packing and the cleaning and the actual moving, which just happened this past weekend, I just haven't been able to have time to make time to edit a new episode of this podcast. I'm sorry about that. I really wanted to make it the entire year being consistent with this podcast, and this is actually, it's it's kind of disappointing for me, so I, I do apologize. But today I have an episode that came out back in February with Lidge Shaw. It was a really good episode. Lidge had a ton to share, and if you haven't heard this one already, I think that you're going to really like it. So here is my conversation with Lidge Shaw from uh, earlier this year. This is Who Makes a Podcast? Conversations with your favorite podcast hosts about who they are, the shows they make, and why they make them. I'm your host, Chris Cookley, and my guest today is Lidge Shaw. Lidge is an award-winning and chart-breaking music and podcast producer, recording engineer, musician, and owner of the Grammy-awarded recording studio, The Toy Box Studio, in East Nashville, Tennessee. He's also the host of the number one iTunes podcast, Recording Studio Rockstars, and mix engineer for the annual backstage Bonnaroo, The Hay Bale Studio. In 2020, he led the movement for Save Home Studios in Music City. Lidge. Welcome to Who Makes a Podcast.
1: Chris, thanks for having me here, man. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm super excited to have you on. Uh, As I told you before we started recording, before we got going, I'm a big fan of your podcast. I've been listening to it for a long time. And uh, I just love what you do on recording studio rock stars with the guests that you bring on and the knowledge that you share with everybody. So I'm very excited to have you here.
1: Thanks, man. I appreciate that. and It's an honor to be here on your show, and it's always just an honor to hear from anybody who's listening to my show. It's always a little bit remarkable to me that people put in the time to listen to all the stuff that I've recorded.
0: Yeah, it's it's very cool. For my listeners who who may not know who you are, uh, would you mind telling me a little bit about yourself, where you're from originally, and, and what you do beyond podcasting?
1: Sure. Um, well, you know, to... At the risk of making this a long story, I'll try and make it short, but I had been living in Boston is where I grew up, um, up in the the Northeast. And I ended up going to college for architecture many years ago, decades ago. And while I was in school, I was playing in bands a lot and um, probably should have been doing my architecture homework, but I had more fun making music and playing in bands. And... As I graduated, I traveled for a year and I ended up in of all places, Hong Kong, with my brother for a half a year playing in a blues band together. And it was like, you know, a real eye-opening experience to me playing a lot of music every night. And um, I got to see the inside of a recording studio for the first time while I was there. And while I was in the studio, I was just really mesmerized by the lights and the big mixing console and the tape machine and stuff like that. And I had this aha moment where I realized that I really needed to pursue my interests in music and in recording. Of course, I had played around with things like a four track recorder, and I was just really into recording stuff and and learning more about writing songs. So I decided when I came back to the US that I would uh, find out about schools for recording. And that led me down to Nashville, Tennessee, where I found a wonderful school called uh, MTSU, Middle Tennessee State University. Went to college here, graduated a couple years later with a second bachelor degree, and jumped with both feet into the recording world here, working in studios, uh, making records, which was a lot of fun for me. Um, and I did that for, you know, twenty five years, which sort of brings us closer to the present. But let's see, about seven years ago, so in twenty fifteen, I had been in the process of listening to. Um, To podcasts and sort of discovered them through my own, um, you know, my my own exploration online, and I was actually looking for more information about the business side of doing what I did because in 2005 I opened a a home recording studio and I started working independently, and you know, had to just go through, um, you know, through trial and error. I had to just learn. All the ways about you know how are you going to run a business? How are you going to support yourself? How are you going to bring in clients and all that kind of stuff? And so that led me to podcasts that were teaching me that. And so one of the things that I discovered were these podcasts by Pat Flynn and John Lee Dumas were a couple of my favorites, teaching business and online business, and also encouraging people to just realize that you could start your own podcast as part of what you are passionate about and part of your interest. And that led me to wanting to start a podcast in 2015. I started a podcast called Recording Studio Rockstars and began interviewing people, engineers, and producers from the recording studio to learn more about what they did and just talk about what I love talking about anyway, which was making records in the studio. And I've been doing that for the past seven years. So... I don't know, maybe I moved too fast right there, but, uh, you know, I, I started a studio called the Toy Box Studio. Um, and I started a podcast called Recording Studio Rockstars. And there were a couple of podcasts in the middle there that I had to kind of start and and stop and get through before I ultimately started Recording Studio Rockstars. Kind of learning your way there a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And we could we could dive into all that stuff. But um, along the way, when I started the podcast, too, very briefly with my home studio here in Nashville, uh, I I actually received a cease and desist letter from the city of Tennessee, from Tennessee, um, from Nashville codes, the city of Tennessee, from the city of Nashville, um, from the codes department, because it turned out that there was a local ordinance that said, you're not allowed to work from a home and have a customer come over to your house. And I kind of got caught in the crossfire of somebody else trying to Asked for permission to do that. Um, when they were told that they couldn't open a home business and then they discovered that I had one, um, on the internet by finding my website, they filed a complaint to the city and the city came along and shut down my studio. This happened right at the same time that I was launching my podcast coincidentally. And so I sort of transitioned over to focusing a whole lot more on my podcast.
0: Yeah, that's that's crazy that uh you kind of got caught in that. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. I wanted to jump back real quick and ask you a little bit about when you started your home studio. Was that a hard thing for you to do?
1: Um, boy, hard thing for me to do. I don't think so. I mean, it was a ton of work. It's always been a ton of work, but when I was recording before I actually had what I needed for a home studio, I just started accumulating gear, you know, it was like recording and making music in the studio was my passion, so every time I had a little bit of money and this was before I was a homeowner or anything like that. You, you know, before um before that when I would earn any money from working on records, if my bills were paid, I would just turn around and spend it on gear. I'd go to eBay and get get a microphone or you know, get some kind of computer recording interface, that sort of thing. And so I accumulated stuff over the first decade of making records professionally. And at the point at which I was ready to actually, you know, create a studio in my garage of my home as a homeowner, I already had most of the things that I might need to put that together. Still, it required a ton of work for me because, you know, just. Just wiring up a studio alone is a ton of stuff. Sure. Just just making sure your computer is working and that all the the software is properly installed can be um, can be a lot of work. In fact, I've been doing a ton of that this week. Just getting ready to um, transfer my studio computer from one to a new a new computer.
0: That'll be a big move.
1: So far, it has been.
0: Uh, I'm curious, just a little bit about the uh, the client side of that. So, were you were you working in your home studio at the same time you were working in another professional studio, kind of ramping that up, or was it a, a cold turkey? I'm done at my old job, and now I have to go find musicians to record at home.
1: Well, I still continued to work in professional studios or commercial studios some after I started my home studio. Um, and, and maybe I should back up a little bit more and give this to you in phases. So when I became actually, before I was even a homeowner, I did what most people do. I I sort of picked a room and I dedicated a corner of that room to my home studio setup, And I began to do a little bit of work there. I remember, you know, having some people come over and we recorded there. Um, and maybe I did some mixing and some composing. And then after I bought my home. When I moved in, I had every intention of setting up my home studio in the house. So I did the next thing that we all do, which is, you know, we set up, we, we pick a room for our control room and then we run mic lines to the rest of the house. And, and every other nook and cranny of the house becomes, you know, an isolation booth for overdubs where you can put a guitar amp or put a singer or drums or whatever. And, um, you know, hope the neighbors don't mind. But um, I did that for a little bit and did a few sessions like that, you know, and, and I, I made some records I was really proud of and, you know, took advantage of the basement, for example. In fact, when I bought the house, I knew that I needed to be able to play drums and get loud and not bother the neighbors. So one of the first things I did was um, I had a, a friend of mine who's a professional drummer, the drummer from the band Wilco, actually, wow. came over. My buddy Ken came over and he brought a snare drum. Um, as a favor to me, and and came down and set it up in the basement. And he just beat the hell out of it <laughs> while I walked around the outside of the house with the realtor and we just listened to see if you could really hear it. And once we were satisfied that it was like, hey, that's that's pretty good. You know, then I was like, Great, I'll take the house.
0: Yeah. Finding a house with a basement might be a, a bit of a challenge too in Nashville.
1: Yeah, yeah, indeed. Actually, that's true, because there's a lot of crawl space um home design here traditionally. But basements are great. Um, you know, I know your show is going to be geared towards a lot of podcasters, and realizing that you're going to want some form of sound isolation is important. So whether you, uh, you know, choose a house or you know are able to set up a podcast recording studio in your basement, or just choose a room that's in a you know secluded part of the house where it's quiet and there's not a lot of distractions is pretty important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so, you know, so I did the ha- studio in the house for a while. And then when I built the studio in the garage, that was the next transition. Uh, but while I had the studio in the house, to answer your original question, I was combining that a whole lot more with working in professional studios. But at the point at which I decided to finally commit to moving it into the garage and set it up properly was also the period where i had my daughter and i went from being single to married and and having my my you know become a parent and so you know it was it was quite a commitment to set that up properly and get everything going but it was the best move i ever did and and i've almost entirely been working just from my home studio ever since
0: that's kind of incredible yeah thanks you started recording studio rock stars in 2015 which is the year that you said you were given a cease and desist letter from Nashville Metro Codes for your home recording studio. Were the two events related at all? Did you start your podcast in response to that cease and desist or was that just completely coincidental?
1: Well, it was actually coincidental because I had every intention of starting my podcast and I had launched it. I had sort of started the website, I think, in July of that summer, and then only a month later is when I got the the cease and desist. So the actual timing of both happening was coincidental, but of course the um, you know the 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 perfection of that timing was just what I needed. So so at a point at which I was being told that I couldn't really have a client come over to my studio to to make a record and I was trying to figure out how to deal with that you know I I also figured out this other way to start my own business where I'm just going and doing interviews with people or doing interviews over the internet and creating a podcast so it worked out really well and the podcast itself really served to fill in the gap that the studio had left and it really helped in a tremendous way You know, I really had to shift my business online to create the podcast and to start um, teaching around that, teaching recording as well.
0: So when you got that cease and desist letter, did you actually stop recording people in your home studio? Or is that monitored at all? Were people like keeping tabs on you?
1: I didn't. I know. I mean, the city wasn't coming over and knocking on my door or anything like that. So, you know, I focused on the podcast, I focused on making my own music, and I did what any musician does, which is be incredibly scrappy and try and figure out every little thing that you can do to keep it all together and keep it all going if you're independent.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that was a a pretty, not not, maybe terrifying, but uh, certainly an intense period of time.
1: It was pretty terrifying. I I couldn't sleep for a week. I mean, I was really freaked out. Yeah. Um, Because, you know, when... When you've committed all of your energy and, and your, your, your whole career towards something, and then all of a sudden the rug's pulled out from under you, it, um, it's pretty scary, especially when you are not just an individual anymore, and sleeping on somebody's couch doesn't look like such a great idea any longer.
0: Yeah, the, the family aspect certainly adds another level of pressure to that for sure. Yeah. So after uh, five years, it seems like, right? 2020? Nashville finally voted to allow home recording studios. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So again, long story, but I'll try and make it short. When the cease and desist letter came along, I actually ended up having conversations with two different pro bono legal firms, the Institute for Justice, which is national, and the Beacon Center, which is local here in ten- in Nashville and in Tennessee. And both of them specialize in economic liberties and property rights um, for the individual. So we teamed up and kind of created a super legal team. And I decided to fight back and fight against the city. So that led us through a process of trying to rezone my property. And then it led to us filing a lawsuit against the city of Nashville and the the, uh, Davidson County. And then that during that process in of all years in 2020, along came a Metro council member who had proposed a new bill saying, Hey, why don't we change the local ordinance here to start allowing people to work from home and and you know potentially have a customer come over? And I saw that and I said, This is everything we're trying to get to happen. So I'm gonna I'm gonna drop everything I'm doing and I'm gonna make this my full-time job in 2020 and push this thing until it gets through somehow. And that led to a six to seven month process of me coordinating a movement, um, starting a petition that reached 150,000 signatures, uh, mobilizing people to come out and to all the public hearings for the Metro Council and the different uh, planning commission meetings and things like that, and ultimately getting enough of the council members on board so that in July we were finally able to vote through a new ordinance and get it passed. Finally legalizing the ability to work from home and have a working home studio as part of that. And so I, I called that whole movement savehomestudios.com.
0: Yeah, that's that's awesome. And I'm sure I'm not the only person listening to that story who's going, you have got to be absolutely insane to say that musicians can't work and record from home in Nashville.
1: Or anywhere for that matter. I mean, the music business is like, I don't know who still thinks that, that we're getting, you know, Eagles budgets every time right? we want to make a record, but yeah. it hasn't been that way for an awfully long time.
0: Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know if you could put a percentage on it, but it's got to be in the high 90% of all the music that's being made right now is being made in somebody's house.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you look at um, the recent Grammy submissions, there again is Phineas and um, Billy Eilish, both of whom were making um, you know their records in a home studio out on the West Coast. Yeah, um, and the whole home studio thing, you know that that started showing up in the '90s, and it's done nothing but just grow and mature. And now, of course, anybody can you could buy an iPad and start making a record in your home.
0: Yeah, GarageBand is not not a terrible piece of software if you know how to use it.
1: Not at all, not at all. And for me, and particularly in Nashville, you know, one of the few remaining places where world-class musicians still get together face to face in front of a microphone, it's just really important um to me to keep that tradition of bringing musicians together to record together. I don't think everything, you know, not everything needs to move to the metaverse if you know what I mean. Right. Right, yeah.
0: That provision or that, that bill that passed, it's not permanent though yet, is it? It it needs to right. be renewed, I guess, in twenty twenty three. Is that when that expires? Are you already yes. gearing up for that?
1: Yeah. So so one of the challenges was that in order for the um metro council to to pass the bill, they had to kind of water it down a little bit uh to make, you know, the people on the fence happy, which is they put something on it called the sunset clause. Which means that in three years after they passed it, it, the Metro Council would need to re-vote on it to continue it. And at that point, it would become permanent, um, you know, a permanent part of the fabric of the legislation. But if they don't vote it through, then it expires and just everybody goes right back to being illegal again. And, you know, when I saw that, I thought it was a great, great step forward, but it's certainly not a permanent solution. So I actually turned to my legal team and I just said, "Let's let's keep pushing our lawsuit up the ladder until we, you know, get to the very top, which remarkably is about to happen. Um, when this interview comes out, it may, it's likely will have already happened, but um, we're on our way to the the Tennessee Supreme Court for a hearing. We're going to get our bill heard. Uh, excuse me, we're going to get our, our lawsuit heard uh, by the Tennessee Supreme Court." And who knows? Maybe we'll pass it at that point. Yeah. Or excuse me, I got—I keep mixing up my legislation <laughs> litigation. We're not going to pass it. Hopefully, I'll just win at that point. Yeah, yeah. And then you know the city won't be able to bug me about it anymore.
0: And good luck with that. Thank I'm sure you. Sure, everybody's uh, rooting for you and uh, hoping that that goes the right way.
1: Well, it's been really exciting, as exciting as uh, you know the legal process can be, which is sure. pretty dang boring most of the time, you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, absolutely.
0: Hey, it's Chris. Can I jump in here for a minute and ask if you have thought about making your own podcast? If you have, you may have realized there's a lot more that goes into it than you might have thought. Don't worry. I have a gift for you. I want you to have my podcast quick start checklist. From what microphone and recording software you should use to how you host and distribute your show, I'm here to help with all of that and more. My podcast quick start checklist will walk you through everything you need to know to start your podcast. I'll show you what's actually important. To get my podcast quick start checklist, go to whomakesapodcast.com slash start and tell me where to send it. Now let's get back to the episode. Let's switch switch uh, directions just a little bit. So you started playing music professionally with your brother Nate in Hong Kong uh, shortly after college. How do you think your life would be different if you had never traveled to Hong Kong?
1: Would you be an architect right now? I'm afraid I'd probably be an architect. It's funny to say that, you know, if, if I was back in school and, I was, and I'm thinking, what are you talking about? You're afraid you're going to be an architect. You're, you're training to be one. <laughs> my passion and my calling was definitely music. I mean, I, I might've found my way there one way or another, but if I had not gone traveling, I probably would have been more in a situation where there would have been a lot of pressure to go get an architecture job. And it was through that experience of playing music, you know, five days a week and seeing a professional studio and just meeting other professional musicians that I realized that you know, that was an option for me. I think when there's something that you might want to do, one of the best ways to, you know, motivate yourself to really take action and do it is to realize, you know, is to meet people who are actually doing it, is to find a community of people who are doing that thing that you're interested in, whether it's music or podcasting, you know?
0: Yeah. If you had to pick one piece of music or one music project that you're most proud to have been a part of, or that you would tell my listeners, hey, if you're going to go listen to anything that I've worked on or anything that I've made, go and listen to this, what would that piece of music or music project
1: be? Well, I've got two in mind that I'm really excited about. So one of them was one of the first records I got to produce professionally, and it was from my home studio before I actually... You know, set it up. You know the, the the fancy way in the garage when it was just in my bedroom, um, and I was just running mics down to different parts of the house. And that's a record called "Home Away" that I produced and recorded with Will Kimbrough, who's a fantastic musician here in Nashville, amazing guitarist as well and songwriter. And um, it was just a real honor for me. and And one of the things that really s- stood out for me in that process was. I was being asked to record the record to engineer it, but i I took a chance you know i I like sort of stepped outside of my comfort zone and asked if I might be allowed to co produce it with him. I really wanted to have you know the the um permission to pursue my creative directions and creative ideas, and he said yes, you know and then i and I started doing it and it was just so much fun to make that record and it turned out so cool and it was like so far beyond anything i had done at the time so that was really exciting for me and that was you know back in the early boy that was very early two thousand something like 2002 or something like that wow. and then more recently i engineered recorded and mixed a record with a musician that is probably one of the greatest musicians i've had the honor of working with yet and it's a local guy named David Rogers, who's an incredible pianist, grew up studying classical and then learned how to play jazz. And he's just like, it's just one of these people who, when you watch him play stuff, you're like, I didn't even know people could do that, you know? Yeah. And he brought in an incredible list of musicians into the studio, just really, really talented, you know, drummers and bass players and sax saxophonists and horn players and guitar players and just like everybody he brought in was fantastic. And he really also gave me the freedom to pursue the things that I wanted to pursue creatively. And he was, he is one of those artists who's willing to keep pursuing his, his recording, his vision and his creative ideas until he gets there, you know? So we spent a lot of focus on making that record and the record is called doorways and it's out now. You can find it, you know, on on Spotify and Apple Music and all the places. And it's just beautiful. It's just great, great music. It turned out awesome. There's a lot of fun to record. And, and you know, I'm really proud of the way it sounds. So that's one that's recent that um we wanted to submit it to the Grammys actually, but unfortunately we just missed the deadline for submissions. Ah, so maybe
0: next year. Yeah,
1: maybe I'm gonna have to. I'm going to have to make an even better record and submit the next one.
0: <laughs> well, I'm definitely going to check that one out. The uh, The Home Away album, is that also available on the streaming
1: platforms, or is that... Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. you can find that everywhere.
0: Awesome. Well, everybody go listen to those two and uh, tell Lidge how fantastic they are.
1: Yeah, thanks. Will Kimbrough and David Rogers. Awesome. You have a
0: fairly legendary MCI console in your studio, and for people who may not know a console is, is the, the big recording uh, mixing desk thing with all the buttons and the faders and the inputs and the outputs and everything else, right?
1: It is indeed. Yeah.
0: So records like the Bee Gees staying alive, the Eagles hotel, California and Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville among others were recorded using that particular console. Uh, How do you think working with a piece of equipment like that, with that kind of a history, influences how you make and record music? Does something like that have a soul?
1: Uh, Does it have a soul? That's a good question. (laughs) You're not the first person to ask that, actually. believe it or not. I loved using that console. So you just heard the, the ED on the end of Oh what I said. So oh. you're gonna you're gonna hate me for this, but breaking news? Yeah, breaking news. I actually just moved it out of my studio and we're looking for a no home. And now you're fully in the box. Yeah, so I've switched, but I do have lots to say about it. It it is a beautiful, beautiful console. It sounds incredible. As with any old vintage piece of gear, just like if you had an old, you know, beautiful model. T Ford or whatever model a um, you're, you're, you know, it, with that comes a certain level of caretaking and maintenance and stuff like that. So I had to do things like uh, when I got the console, I had to pull the cards out because there were no schematics for it. It was a custom built console that G um, Parnet had built for criteria studios at, where it lived in the 1970s. And I, and I, you know, spent my vacations With a pencil, reverse engineering all the trace on this thing and drawing out my own diagrams so that I could create my own schematic for the mic pre's, and I, you know, I did did stuff like that and installed phantom power into it so that it would power the modern microphones, and um, it just sounded amazing. It sounded really, really fantastic. One of the things that uh, that I really loved doing with it was a series of live performance sessions at the studio that we called stereo sessions. And um, we actually have links to that at at my studio website at the toyboxstudio.com. But we did a year's worth of videos, performancing, uh, excuse me, a year's worth of performances and videos from the studio with with local bands, where each band might perform a few songs. And then we take one and make a video out of it and we were releasing two videos a week so we released like a hundred videos like that wow and and while the band was performing i would actually mix it in real time live through the console down to stereo so that you know when the performance was done the recording and the mix was done as well and we'd shoot videos with iphones and then assemble all those videos and the and the mix together And, you know, put those out as YouTube videos. So that, that was a ton of fun and it really sounded amazing. But ultimately for me in the studio, making records in a modern fashion, which is using the computer and pro tools, I found the most useful aspect of this. The console for me was to use the microphone preamps. Yep. So those sounded amazing, and I'd and, you know run a mic into them, and then run that into Pro Tools, and then I'd sort of do all the EQing and compressing and stuff like that within Pro Tools within the computer, and it was great.
0: That would become like the world's largest microphone pre.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it was a very big microphone preamp, and it has a series of um, you know four power supplies that are over to the side that have loud fans. It's designed for a studio that is a bigger than my home studio was really, is the ultimate answer to that question. So in order to take those fans that are loud and not hear them, you have to have something called a, a machine room. So you would typically have you know, a closet or something off to the side where you can put the gear in there and it's cooled but it's you know the doors closed, so you're not going to hear the noise that the machinery makes, so that the control room can be really quiet. That's one aspect that I didn't really have for that. Um, it was it, the size of it was um, not too big to fit into my room, but it was a little too big for me to get around behind it and access all the cards and things to do maintenance. So that was a little bit of a challenge. And then um, and then the mixing aspect of it. Works really great if you uh, if you want to do what I was talking about, where you're mixing it as you go. But as with any vintage console like that, it doesn't allow that same level of precision mixing. When you when somebody you know emails you two weeks later and says, "Hey, can you make this yeah. teeny tiny change right here? Otherwise, leave everything else exactly the same." And working in the box does give you that aspect. So it's always a trade off. There's always like a balance of like. You know what level of using an incredible piece of outboard gear is going to give you, uh, you know, what you're looking for sonically, balanced against what level of the ability to maneuver and recall things and do edits um, and have flexibility that you need is going, you know, that your Pro Tools and your your um, computer system is going to give you.
0: Would, would any kind of automations or anything like that have to have been done manually, like turning turning down a Fader or anything like that?
1: Yeah. So, so, so I tried. um, So, if you're into record the recording studio thing and using um, summing mixers or outboard gear, you know, we all kind of go through the same process, which is, you know, you you think, oh, what if I try this? And so, one of those things is to say, well, let me set up the mixer where all the faders are set at one level. And then I'm going to route everything from the computer through these mixers and then uh, through the faders rather. And then I'm going to adjust the levels inside the computer. And then that's cool. That can sound great. And that can sound pretty good. And in fact, the record that I did, uh, that I use for the soundtrack of my podcast is called Skadoosh. And it's an instrumental album that I recorded myself with with another drummer, with Corey Siegel. Great drummer here in Nashville. And that one, I did it like that, sort of what you call a hybrid mixing technique. And it sounded great. But again it was just in my experience, it was too difficult to recall a mix later and set that back up and get it right where you left it. And so I tried doing that. Um, you know, I tried mixing just through the console, like I described for the video series. And then ultimately I just started mixing entirely in the computer and decided that it still sounded great like that. And, um, and that I was able to get the results I needed for the, the records I was working on.
0: Yeah, I, I imagine there was a time, probably not too long ago, where you didn't know that her, maybe computers just weren't even able to do what they can do now. And so you, you didn't realize how convenient they could be, just recording engineers in general. And uh, so they would they would deal with these large uh, consoles and, you know, move in their, the faders and doing all the automations and stuff manually and that's just the way that life was and now that we have computers and and DAWs that work uh, as a computer does it just doesn't really make sense all that much to, to deal with the hassle of a console like that.
1: Yeah no that's absolutely true I mean there was a transitioning period where we started using computers in Pro Tools and we thought about them like a special effects thing off to the side you know that you would use somewhat but you'd, you'd ultimately still come back and go through the console. And then the computers just got more powerful. And and one day we woke up and we we're like, hey, why do we keep taking this step? Why don't we just leave everything in the computer yeah. and just finish the record that way?
0: Yeah, these are really good now.
1: Yeah, and now, of course, the computers and the sound and what's possible are just you know crazy flexible and good and the quality is so, so much better. Um, and then that that kind of brings us forward to... Another aha moment I had down the road, which was realizing that, Hey, maybe if I can do all this stuff in the computer and it's not quite turning out the way that I expect, maybe it has more to do with the decisions I'm making, you know, when I'm actually mixing this stuff Yeah. and fast forward, I finally got a really, really wonderful monitor system in my studio So in the recording studio, when we say monitors, we're talking about not the visual screen for our computer, but the speakers. So I got a new speaker system installed, and it allows me to hear with great precision what I'm working on. It's called a phantom focus system by a studio designer named Carl Tatz. And boy, that really, really makes such a huge difference when you're trying to mix, Just, just being able to accurately hear what it is that you're doing so that the decisions you make turn out to be good ones when you go listen to your mix out in the real world.
0: Lidge, I could talk to you for hours about music and recording and, and all of that stuff. And I know that you could also talk about that forever, but uh, no. I would like to move into podcasting a little bit.
1: I think that's a great idea. I bet, I bet <laughs> everybody who's listening now wishes we were talking about podcasting already. Yeah. It's awesome.
0: Uh, how is how is making music and making a podcast different, or how are they the same?
1: All right, so as you can imagine, when I decided I wanted to make a podcast, I already had a lot of experience in recording.
0: You're one of the, uh, the few people... Yeah,
1: I, I knew how to use microphones. Right. Um, I knew how to feel comfortable working with a computer. I knew how to edit. I knew how to mix and do things like that. So that was great, and that inspired me to want to make a show that sounded really good. But it was funny because I still had to go through a real learning and growth process. And I still had to stumble around for a while because mixing voice and mixing podcasts and mix, you know, it's closer in a way to mixing for radio than it is to mixing for records. Um, And you have to learn, some different skill sets you sort of have to figure out what what and where the sweet spot is for things you have to go through trial and error until you start to discover what makes things sound the way you want them to sound and then and then down the road you probably have to erase all that and start all over again so in that way it is like mixing and making records in the studio (laughs) Um, because there's a lot of that that happens but um you know, I, I did uh, I did a lot of experimentation at first. And I just, you know, at first I was deciding like, well, what microphone should I use? You know, and I tried, tried different things out. Well, how does my voice sound in it? You know, how far away from the mic should I be? How close should I be? Um, what levels should I do? How much EQ and compression do I need to add to this to make it sound right? Do I need to get crazy with stuff? Or do I need to, you know... Just be more, uh, you know, gentle with the settings, all that stuff, and ultimately, I was able to develop a, a template for mixing. Well, I, I developed a system for recording my interviews because I do an interview-based podcast, and which means I needed to figure out how to record my voice and record my guest's voice and make sure that they both sounded uh, as good as I could get them. Yep. And then, and then I had to develop a mixing template something that was working for me using the stuff that I'm using that I could repeat um, for every episode so that I could have consistency and stuff like that.
0: I'm uh, pretty curious. Obviously you have a, a large technical background with equipment and gear and stuff. So what is your podcasting signal chain look like? What microphone are you using? What did you decide on?
1: Well, I'm using it right now. This is a Mic tech PM nine, which is, you know, essentially a handheld, stage vocal mic. It's a dynamic, um, and it's made by a local microphone company here in Nashville. And there are, there are a lot of great mics out there for, you know, that you could choose that will make your voice sound great. I happened to have a a bunch of these when I started. And so I knew I wanted to give it a go. And I, um, you know, I was also working with the microphone company, kind of as a sponsor for some of the other recordings I was doing. And I so, so I was incentivized to give it a shot and at least see how it sounded. And it turned out that it sounded great in my voice. And then I also knew that, well, I've got many of these. So if I need to have a guest or two guests on it, I can have a consistent microphone choice for everybody. So that was a good reason for me to do it. But ultimately, any dynamic mic is a really good choice. Dynamics do a great job of making your voice sound big and round and warm. There's not too much of like, you know, the sound of spit and, you know, you know, you, you don't have to hear your braces wiggling around in your mouth while you talk, yeah. you know, not that, I don't know how many of us are actually wearing braces, probably not many. <laughs> no, they're in-
0: Invisalign now.
1: <laughs> yeah, Invisalign, right. But, you know, you kind of get the idea when you hear somebody on the mic and it sounds like they're eating a sandwich on the microphone and you're like, oh my God, that's too much. And they do a pretty good job of blocking out stuff in the rest of the space you're in. You know, they they just kind of pick up your voice. A condenser mic is the other kind. Uh, you, I think you might be using a condenser right now, Chris.
0: I am not actually. I am, oh, okay. I am Also using a dynamic mic, but I have it. I, so Lidge said that because I mentioned cutting off the phantom power earlier. I have yeah. my microphone running into a Cathedral Pipes Durham, which is like a cloud lifter.
1: Oh, cool. I like the name of it. That sounds cool. Yeah. So a condenser mic is one where you need to power the microphone, and they're what you'd call a very high-fidelity mic. So they're great for recording in the studio, and they can be great for a podcast, but because they pick up everything, you have to be more conscious of making sure that nothing else around you is causing problems. Um, And also, you know, another thing to remember for your listeners is just no matter what mic you pick, the very best mic sound starts with proper mic technique. So it doesn't even matter what your mic is or what your mic pre is first. First, make sure that your mic is where you would put it if you were recording a vocal in a studio. Um, Don't make the mistake that a lot of people do of thinking you can get this microphone that you just sort of set on the desk. So it's down sort of at, at waist or chest height looking up towards you or that the mic that's built into your computer is really a great choice. It can work, you can make those things work, but they present a lot more challenges and you have to be very, very careful um, to make sure that the background noise is not messing things up. But this this mic right now, for example, is about a fist, a bald fist away from my voice or or from my mouth, and it's off to the side. It's not directly in front of my mouth. It's off to the side, looking at the corner of my mouth a little bit, and I just bumped it. So hopefully, that's not creating sounds.
0: So you're kind of talking across the microphone, not necessarily directly into it.
1: Yeah, kind of talking across, and I have a, um, a foam windscreen over the top of it, so that if any you know wind for my voice does hit it, it's not it's not that bad. So uh, again, for your listeners, take take your hand and put it in front of your mouth about a um, you know like four inches from, from your mouth and say peanut butter popcorn. And you should hear, you should feel blasts of air on your hand. And that will cause something called a plosive in the microphone, which is this huge, you know, thumping low end. It also can cause the microphone to kind of have an imploding sound for a moment. And it kind of swallows the word. So it really sounds terrible. And if you move the mic slightly off to the side and have this, this windscreen on it, That helps prevent that plosive or the air from getting in the mic and creating that effect.
0: That that's all fantastic. You could also put a um, a pop filter in
1: front of your microphone.
0: Yeah, (coughs) as I'm dying from a cough. Sorry about that.
1: (laughs) It's all right, man. That's just commitment. Yeah, commitment to be here. So um, yeah, pop filter. The the foam cover is a pop filter or a windscreen, but a pop filter. The other version that I think you're talking about is the kind that has kind of a it's either like a nylon yeah. stocking material or it's a metal screen that you can put in front of the mic and then you can talk right into that and into the mic.
0: What do you have your microphone running into? What's the rest of that signal chain look like?
1: Well, uh, before you even get what what it's going into, don't forget to ask about the mic stand because that's pretty critical, especially if you're doing a podcast.
0: What mic stand do you have? What What is your microphone on, Lidge?
1: Yeah, so it's um mine is is nothing fancy or expensive. It's just a cheap one from Amazon, but it's a um it's called a boom arm. So it has a screw-on mount that you can mount to the edge of the desk and then you put the boom arm in that and it allows you to kind of like like you see when you see images of a radio studio, yep. you see this microphone thing that kind of has springs on it and moves back and forth easily across the desk. So you don't have to have a, a physical big mic stand that's trying to get near your chair and all that stuff.
0: Listeners, I also use a boom arm on my microphone.
1: They're great. Now, I will tell you that with the cheap one, it has four springs on it, on mine, and the metal is kind of flimsy. So one of the things I notice right away is that every it, it sort of resonates sound of thumps and bumps, or if you move it a little bit, it it kind of goes boing and one of the solutions i did for that that was easy is i just took a a t-shirt and paper towels and stuff like that and i bunched it up and i stuffed it in the nooks and crannies of it so that it's kind of absorbing
0: that's a good idea that,
1: you know and i wedged it between the spring and the edge and all that stuff just kind of kills kills the noise that it creates
0: is that prohibiting you from being able to move it
1: very much no i can still move it it's yeah. i mean it's like trust me the the duct tape solutions are good ones yeah um, so that all runs into my mic preamp, and in my case, I have one of the first ones that I ever bought for my studio, which is a um, uh, you know a high quality. It's modeled after a Neve design mic preamp, but it's this is a, a Con two thousand two hundred forty two. It's a designer out of St. Louis, so it's a high end mic preamp. Um, so it really has a nice sound to it, and then that runs into my interface. And for this interview, I'm using the IK Multimedia Axe IO, which I happen to have up here in my home studio. I Believe it I, or not, I have a home studio at my home studio. So <laughs> I'm up in the office now for podcasting.
0: So this is not the uh, the studio that you record the music in. This is the podcast studio.
1: Yeah, I've, I've done all that and I've set up my podcasting rig in the studio and, and done many interviews from there. But I realized that I got tired of having to set up and then tear down anything before a podcast interview. Yeah, So I'm, I'm creating a, a totally dedicated interview space up in my office in the house so that all I ever have to do is sit down and just go when it's time to do interviews. That's great. Okay. So the mic, the fancy preamp, the interface, all these things get the signal into the computer Uh, But then the next question is, well, if I'm going to do a remote interview with somebody, how am I going to record my voice? How am I going to record their voice? And early on, I started by using Skype uh, for my interviews. And then there's an app that goes with that that you can get from Ecamm called Call Recorder. And you just install that into Skype. And then it automatically records every call when you start it when you're done it opens it up into another app and then you see both voices on separate tracks and you can export those as two wave files separately individually and then you can bring those wave files into another app and do the mixing and the editing and stuff like that so i just use the skype built-in you know recording function with call recorder and it does a great job you know and i've i'm i've done a little bit of experimentation with other ways, but I think, um, you know, again, it's like other things. Sometimes you arrive at that compromise between like what's super reliable and steady and, and is going to work well enough versus, you know, if you get super tweaky about it, looking for that extra 1%, Yeah. you know, what are you going to get out of that? Cause I tried recording my voice on a, you know, a, Onto my digital workstation, which in my case is Pro Tools in the background, and that gets really complicated and you start having to hook up all these different things that are going all different directions and you can forget to do something. So, um, you know, there's a lot to be said in the podcasting world for making sure that your method for doing everything is as simple as possible. And part of the reason is because Nobody gives a crap about that you know in your audience, yeah, all they care about is what you talk about and whether it's good information
0: simple and repeatable,
1: yeah, you need to get right to the good information as as fast as you can and not waste any of your energy as a host on on you know the technical side of things
0: speaking about that just a little bit as a recording engineer and producer, musician. Does it get under your skin at all? Does it bother you at all if your guest does not have a quality audio setup? Or is it all about the content? And as long as the content is good, you know, audio quality be damned.
1: Well, there's a couple of answers to that. One is, yes, it bothers me. But it's remarkable how the, there's an opposite correlation to how professional an engineer is and how capable they are of getting a really good sound into Skype. <laughs> so, all of my guests are professional recording engineers and pr- music producers, and yet they seem to have the toughest time getting a mic going into Skype Now, everything changed a little bit over the past couple of years since everybody's you know doing zoom meetings and all that kind of stuff, so that has sort of helped raise the bar a little everywhere, sure, but I've had um all sorts of different situations and Another thing to be aware of is, even here on a Zoom call you know, or on Skype when I'm doing it, whoever's talking doesn't hear their own voice in the headphones, so you have to remember that about your guest. As a host, you're hearing your guest's voice come to you, but they don't know what they sound like. They're relying on you to give them feedback. So I start out each podcast interview by carefully walking them through it. I say, hey, what are you using? You know, We talk about it for a sec. Sometimes they show up and they think they set up a mic, but the mic that you're hearing isn't even the mic that they think they're sending you. It's you know, oh. it's switched over to a different one. Using their laptop or something. Yeah. So you have to be aware of things like that. Here's a good trick. If your guest is joining you on a computer mic and they think they're using their mic, but to you it sounds like the laptop mic and you're wanting to confirm that, have them brush their hand over the surface of the laptop or over the edge of the computer screen. Um, you know, if it's a, if that's where the mic might be. I guess on a laptop, it would be down on the surface. It's usually down where the speakers are on a on a MacBook, for example. And the moment that their hand brushes over it, you're going to get a big whoosh sound, and that way you can confirm right away that you're hearing the mic that's on the laptop. Uh, and again, they wouldn't even know it. They won't even hear what you just heard. So that's one That's one tip for you. Another is if your guest does show up using like Apple wired headset, which again, that that's becoming less common too because everybody's got those wireless earbuds these days. But if they do show up with a wired headset, they'll hear you in their headphones and their mic will pick up their voice. Although, you know, and it may sound okay, but what happens is, Every time the mic brushes up against somebody's beard or their shirt lapel or anything like that, it makes a horrible crackling, brushing, scraping noise. Yeah, Same problem. They wouldn't know it. They won't hear it. So really the best thing to do is just you know, try whatever mic they've got and try and set help them set up in such a way that their mic is set up, again, like a vocal mic position so it's right in front of the mouth. I mean, not... I shouldn't say right in front of the mouth because people will misinterpret that and they'll think they mean like, you know, right on it like that, which doesn't sound very good. Near the mouth. Hopefully that didn't sound good as an example of what doesn't sound good. No, it
0: sounded like it clipped in my headphones.
1: Okay, good, good, good. Um, You want to have, you know, if if somebody's again, holding their fist up like a ball, put that in front of your mouth like like you're calling through your bald hand, you know? And then um and then that gives you the distance to the microphone is a pretty good starting point or like hang tan, you know, like if yeah. you're a surfer, that's a good distance. So have them set it up like that. There's times where if where a guest, you know, has to join me on a phone for the Skype call. And if I can get them to somehow have headphones in, but use the built-in phone mic. And you and again you set up the the phone in a vocal mic position that can still sound pretty good but bottom line is uh, a lot of it has to do with the mixing you just have to make sure that your guest isn't too far away from the mic that's sort of like the rule of thumb and that you do all the right moves and mixing to make sure that the voice sounds you know strong and clear and that the the uh, tonality is right and that it's not um there's not a bunch of junk in the background and all that And the real learning lesson for me was going through all these different recording interview situations. I've done, you know, maybe 350 at this point and um, you know, people showing up with $10,000 microphones, people showing up with cheap USB mics that you just plug in people showing up with um, a mic like mine, you know, an SM seven sort of, that's one of the sure SM seven B is one of the classic radio mics. So that's a great choice if you're looking for one to get, uh, to start out with. And then in the end, I thought, well, why don't I see who my most popular episode is with, which is Steve Albini. He's a a recording engineer, uh, out of Chicago, Illinois. He's got a studio called electrical audio, and he's done many, many famous records, including working with Nirvana and the Pixies. And, um, his episode was the absolute most popular one and he showed up with the absolute <laughs> love you Steve but he showed up with the absolute <laughs> worst recording rig you can get. He showed up on a computer sitting back in his office chair with the mic far away from him and I think no headphones.
0: Man, isn't that incredible?
1: Yeah, so go figure, you know, in the end it's all about the content not the sound. But I will say that my uh care and method in mixing made sure that you could clearly hear what he was saying, even though he was on a bad mic.
0: Yeah. Uh, I was actually just about to mention Steve Albini. So you've had some incredible guests on your podcast, people like Vance Powell, Billy Decker, Steve Albini, Ryan Hewitt. And those are just a few of the names that I recognized among the 350 plus interviews that you've done. What's one of the most enlightening interviews that you've had with your guest, And what's one that really stands out and why?
1: Oh, man, I've had so many that have really been fantastic and it's been a you know a real honor to work with all these people and to learn from them. One of the ones that really stood out to me, uh, you know, if I had to pick one, was my interview with Craig Alvin. Um, and I think we did that right in the beginning, uh, like end of 2019, beginning of 2020, something like that. And he started breaking down. He had just won Record of the Year for uh, the Golden Hour casey musgraves um and it was you know just a a really great moment for him and for all the people who worked on that record we were just talking about that and we were talking about his process of mixing and he started uh so so again for your listeners who are making podcasts there's a you know you can get pretty deep into mixing even a podcast but when you get into the music world it gets really, you can get really deep with mixing. You don't always have to, but you certainly can. And he started breaking down his mixing process in such a way that it was like, you know, it's, it was very step-by-step and he was really open and revealing about all the things, the settings he would use and what plugin he would use and where he would put it and stuff. And it was pretty mind blowing. And so I asked on the show, I just said, Hey, you know, rock stars, that's how I refer to my listeners. I said, you know, if you guys want to, You know, want us to go more in depth with this, you know, drop a comment in and let us know. uh, Maybe we'll do a clinic on this or, or, you know, do some teaching around this. And I got a, you know, a flood of feedback from the rock stars. And so we decided to do an actual clinic where we would teach this. Well, our first choice was going to be in studio altogether doing a live clinic. Unfortunately, the world shut down at that time. And due to the shutdowns, we were like, okay, well, I guess we can't do that. So we will um, we'll pivot this over to a webinar style and we did that and we did like a full saturday thing where where craig took a mix and broke it down and um you know really showed exactly how he would set everything up you know and one of the uh one of the takeaways i really loved was taking the limiter and putting it at the end of your chain and turning it turning the gain up or the threshold to nine a setting of minus nine, and then pushing the music into it so that your loudest section of the song was doing uh, minus 6.5 dB of gain reduction. Now that sounds like incredible, super nerdery.
0: Some technical jargon. Yeah, some
1: technical nerd stuff right there to your listeners. But again, when you're mixing your podcast, you're going to be Before you know it, you're going to be dying to know answers like that. You're like, oh my God, how? what level should I set this to so that my show sounds great like the other shows I hear in the podcasting app? So stuff like that was a lot of fun. And we ended up doing a a live webinar. And then I took that and and we edited that down into separate modules and then turned that into an actual online course called ultimatemixingmasterclass.com. And then um, that we've been able to, you know, teach hundreds of students that way, uh, just how to do better mixing, you know, how to how to mix consistently so that every time you sit down and work on music, you know that the results are going to come out sounding professional. So stuff like that's been really really fun. And then I'll share one more quick takeaway because this this was one of my favorites that I use probably more often than anything. And this comes from Jamie Tate who's a wonderful engineer and producer and owner of the Ruckus Room in Nashville and a classmate of mine from MTSU. And he shared this tip for how to know where to put the microphone on your guitar amp, which is just one of the most frust- common frustrations and problems and challenges for all of us. you know. And, and before this trick, I did what we all do, which is try all kinds of different things, or don't worry about trying anything at all and just you know cross your fingers and hope for the best. But his tip was to turn the guitar amp on and then unplug the guitar from it so that you're not, you know, nobody's going to hit a chord and it's going to go kaboom right in your ear. And then you lean down and you get your head right in front of the amp and you're just listening for the sound of the hiss coming out of the speaker. And then you move your ear around, just one ear sort of in the position of where a microphone might be and you listen to the hiss sound until you find a spot where you're like oh i really like the tone of the speaker right in that moment and i know it sounds weird you're like what kind of tone is there in the sound of hiss and noise but you you really hear it it's like you know you're you're already at that point where you care about the sound of things so when you hear that and you think oh i kind of like that then you just put your, I put my fist up with my thumb and I stick my thumb in my ear right there with my elbow on the ground. Cause you're usually down on the ground. And then I back away and I hold my thumb in that position. And then, you know, you, there's a little tricky because you have to take your mic and your stand and make sure that there's a little bit of flexibility and maneuverability before you do this. And then you just move the mic over. And if it's a Shure SM57, you just put the 57 touching right where your thumb is. And now your mic is perfectly positioned to pick up a great spot on that guitar amp. You plug your guitar amp in and it just sounds great every time.
0: Have you tried to do that and uh, found the right spot and then been like, oh crap, now I got to get up and walk across the room to get the microphone? Like you, you weren't ready to put the microphone on the, on the amp? Oh
1: yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. The first time you do it or you've, you've got the mic on a stand nearby or, or worse is you've got the mic and it's plugged in and the stand is there But then you realize you haven't like clipped the mic into the stand itself. You know, like I can't do all this with one hand. Yeah. So if you can get somebody else to help you position the mic, that can be awesome. How do you find
0: and then book your guests? I I imagine that this gets easier as your show has gotten bigger. You have had some, you know, incredible names in the recording industry. Are you reaching out to these people? Do they know about you already and they're coming to you? What's that process look like for you now?
1: So, it's a combination of things at the very beginning, I did what anybody would have to do, which is just cold call people and reach out from the start and you know try and get a new guest on the show and One of the tips I learned when I launched my show was you know, Go for somebody, have somebody agree to come on. And then when you go to invite the next person, you do this, you know, cumulative effect. You say, oh, I'd love to have you on. I'm about to start my show. So-and-so is going to be on it. And then they go, oh, there's a little bit of social proof there. And then, you know, eventually you're inviting the fourth person on and, you know, you can you can name drop three people before that. So that can be really helpful to get started. But now I do a combination. Sometimes I reach out to somebody. A lot of times I'm having somebody new come on the show. I will also go and have previous guests come back onto the show and Now that I've done enough, I can go back and look at you know who was a popular guest and that that's always a great indicator of who is a you know good choice to have come back on the show because everybody loved having them on or just somebody that you know that I really liked having on the show and interviewing, whether it was you know the hugely popular or not. Uh, so those can be great. And then the biggest tip of all is once you have contacts from people who have been on the show, reach out to them and ask them who they would recommend as a good possible guest, because that will give you a what you would call a really hot lead. So, and ask them to give you an email introduction as well, because that way, whoever this new guest is. They're receiving an email from somebody they already know right and so they're likely to open it and then this and then it comes with the recommendation hey you should meets you know meet Lidge or meet Chris and you should check out this show and consider being a guest you'd be awesome and then that person comes back and if they say like oh that sounds cool nice to meet you then you follow up uh, well you follow up anyway but um, but at least that way, you've got an opportunity to follow up and say, "Oh man, love your work. I just checked it out." Or you say, "I'd love to learn more about you," and you know, you you sort of ask for a first date in that respect. Don't commit to the invitation just yet. Um, just say, you know, because for example, somebody might recommend somebody that you don't like and don't want on your show. So you might want to just uh, you know say, "Hey, how do I learn more about your music?" In my case, yeah. But that works really, really well. Now, I will give you one more tip to that. I made the mistake last time I did this of emailing, uh, trying to take advantage of all my guests, uh, not take advantage of the guests, but take advantage of the bulk aspects of having had many guests on. And what I did was I used my Gmail and I just simply emailed myself and BCC'd many of my guests all at once and said, hey, you know, um, who would you recommend? And then I got a ton of responses, but, but Gmail put them all in one giant email. So it became like unmanageable right away as far as responding to them and keeping up with it.
0: Thanks Google.
1: Yeah. So that was a tough lesson to learn. So if you're going to email people, do it individually, that's the best way. I know there, there have been ways in the past. I never really got it to work, but if you're really ninja with Google you can create a spreadsheet and then there are scripts. Uh, maybe if you use, um, uh, what's it called? I actually don't use it all that often. But, um, you know, if you use a, an automatic script kind of thing, you can like a Zapier program or something. It. Yeah, thank you, Zapier. Yeah, I was thinking of if then th- yeah, if, this, if this, then, then that. that. Yeah. yeah, but if you use Zapier, then you can set it up where it'll go through that list and it'll compose an email and send it to each person. Or you could just, uh, another way to do it, which I think works is you could go you know, open a free MailChimp account and just set up a small list of all the people that are in that contact list and email them directly using the MailChimp thing. So it's like, it's not really a mailing list. You're just using it for occasional emails like that. Or if you have like a contact management uh, kind of app.
0: I'd be lying if I said that I had not dropped your name recently in an email that I sent to somebody.
1: Please do, man.
0: That's the, that's the way we get it done. I got an email back. Who, who else is going to be on your show? Well, Lid Shaw is going to be on my show.
1: That's great. I hope it works for you, man.
0: Yeah, thanks. We're getting close to time and I want to be respectful of that. I do have a couple more questions that I'd like to ask you. So hopefully we can fit them in. Do it. Do you have any tips on how to draw out interesting stories from your
1: guests? Yeah, so that can be a little tricky hopefully you're bringing on guests that like to tell stories but not everybody does and you know if i use myself as an example i love to tell a story but sometimes i suck at getting started with one so everybody has that struggle at times so i find as a host what i try to do is i try to pre-script all my questions which i i don't i send some general questions to my guests beforehand Questions that I might ask of any guest, but all the all the uh, questions that I compose that are specifically related to that guest, I don't send them in advance. Okay. A lot of times, well, for, for a couple of reasons. One is I don't want to overwhelm my guests with too much information. I've had somebody come back uh, who actually never came on the show yet, who told me that it looked like homework. So I can understand that. You know, yeah, people, if somebody's really you know, valuable as a guest, they're probably very busy and they probably don't have a lot of time on their hands. So you don't want to overwhelm them with information. But um, the other reason is because a lot of times my guests don't send over their information to me till the very last second. So I don't even have the ability to compose all those questions until the night, night before. Um, but the, the benefit for me of doing that is it keeps all my questions that I just thought up sort of fresh in my head. In my case, I like to have guests come on and I ask them to send me, you know, a Spotify playlist or we create one for them uh, based on, you know, their discography. And that way I've sort of recently just listened to all their stuff. And so I'm still thinking about it. Uh, there's no way I'm going to be able to remember all the names of the records and the songs and the artists and stuff like that. Um, so I might have Spotify open on my computer so I can flip over to it and glance at it. But more often than not, what I do is when I hear something and you know, this is going to be different for everybody and everybody's podcast. So you'll have to devise your own system, but you still might appreciate this. I'll listen to the song and then I hear something about that song or about that recording that strikes me like, Oh, that's such a cool acoustic guitar sound or what a great sound on the drums, or I love what the effect you do with the vocals. And then I'll drag or copy over the Spotify title over into my google doc which where my questions are and then so it'll i'll see the name of that artist and song and record so i can at least refer to it and then i'll ask a question uh i'll put a question in or about something specific but when i ask the question from the guest i'll um i'll ask it in such a way that i try to leave it very open-ended where they can have permission to um uh, answer it in any way that they want. You know, they can just pivot towards whatever topic they're comfortable talking about. So I don't want to put a guest on the spot to remember something really specific because I just don't want them to be scratching their head, which is what I would do if I was trying to remember something. Right. Now, in, in our case, Chris, you did send questions. I did. So I was able to preemptively remember.
0: Probably too many questions too.
1: No, it was, it was all right. I appreciate it.
0: I have, a, I have a whole list of them that we have not gotten to and we won't get to today.
1: Yeah, it's all right. We'll have, we can come back and do it another time.
0: That would be wonderful. I'm going to hold you to that.
1: All right, do. But, you know, I ask your guest a question in such a way that it gives them the freedom to answer it however they want, um, because anybody who loves the topic is going to be able to riff on it. They just need enough of a prompt to go and and make it happen. It can be tough, though. You know, if you ask, like, what's the funniest thing that ever happened to you in the studio? yeah. It's like, Hey, remember a joke? And it's like, uh, you know, some days I do some days I don't tell
0: me a joke right now. And then,
1: yeah, right. It. Exactly. Yeah. Well, why don't, um, clowns, uh, excuse me, why don't cannibals eat clowns? There you go. <laughs> why? Cause they, cause they taste funny. Oh God. <laughs> I just gotta keep one up your sleeve, man. That's all I got.
0: <laughs> How much research and uh, what sort of notes are you preparing in advance for your interviews?
1: Oh, good. I was I was afraid you were going to say how much research and how many notes did I go into researching that one dumb joke? Oh, No. <laughs> um, so for my interviews, I try and keep it really simple. I learned early on to stop trying to rewrite my intro in my own words. Um, so I ask for a bio from the guest, and then I I recompose it a little bit so that I can read it at the beginning of the podcast interview, but I don't try and you know rewrite everything in my words i just use their words and what the benefit of that was it actually turns out to be more interesting because each intro is a little bit different instead of what i started out doing i found that all my intros sounded the same because i kept saying things the same way about all my guests yeah so i prefer to read their bio and then i go into the questions with them um that i was asking based on you know going through their playlist of music and looking for questions about it. Um, I'll click over to their website I'll take a look at that maybe their website is really well done and maybe that's a great topic to talk about. I might you know read their Wikipedia page and find out more about them there or just read their about you know but that's that's pretty much it you know I just go through most of my guests are people that I don't know, don't know anything about and even if I do know a lot about them, I don't know enough about them to be any kind of expert. So it really gives me the opportunity of being on the show in a live interview to find out all that stuff. So all I really need to do is I need to be prepared enough to ask the right kind of questions and then smart enough to shut up and listen to the answer. Just let them talk. Just let them talk.
0: Yeah. What did it feel like to hit number one on iTunes with your recording studio Rockstars podcast?
1: Oh, thanks, man. Thanks for asking that. It felt amazing. Uh, when I launched the show, we still had a thing in Apple Podcasts or in iTunes called New and Noteworthy. It's a section. Uh, it might be there, but uh, I'm not sure if it operates the same way. But when you launched your show, you had about an eight week window to, you know, sort of break free of the gravitational pull. So if you could get enough going on with your podcast, then you could show up on the New and Noteworthy front page which meant that Apple was presenting that to the entire world for 8 weeks. So it's like you get this, you know, nitro rocket boost if you can show up there. And so I had every intention of doing that and my ultimate goal was to get what I what I call the triple crown which is you you had to choose three categories and in my case I did music, education and technology. And the triple crown would be to hit number one in iTunes new and Noteworthy for all three categories at once, and I was able to do it that's remarkably awesome. I was able to do it and it involved you know reaching out and letting people know in my network um because I didn't have an audience yet I didn't have an email list or anything like that. so I had to start by creating a spreadsheet with a hundred names of friends and family in there and all their contact information and contacting them, you know, individually all at once at the beginning, uh, during that eight week time. And, you know, starting by saying, Hey, I'm about to do this thing. I'd really love your help. Can I count on you to help me launch this? That was a really great ninja takeaway. I learned from somebody else and, um, apologies. I, as it's been so many years that I've forgotten the name of the the fellow I learned it from, but, um, You know, that one means that if people say yes, that's what you call a micro commitment, which gives you like open door permission to come back and say, Awesome, here it is. Please hit the share button. Awesome, you know, this time, can you please go tweet this? Hey, can you please go put this on Facebook today? Hey, can you go listen to it? Hey, can you leave a review? Don't overwhelm people, but you can, you know, just ask for just enough. So I did that. And with getting enough reviews on there and enough listens, I was able to hit that. The triple crown and the day that i hit it i i was ready so i knew i needed to get screenshots and everything like that when it happened because it's the only way you can get a record of it and my daughter was much younger than i guess she was about six at the time uh, or seven and she she came in and i was like i was like come on in check this out i just see the triple crown of podcasting and she didn't even know what that means, <laughs> but we were jumping up and down, cheering in the living room, just like having a party and just cheering out loud. It was just, it was amazing. Yeah, that- it, was, it was like probably the happiest moment of my life at the time. Okay. No, not really, but it was really happy.
0: <laughs> that must have been incredible. Yeah. Uh, all right. I'm going to steal your, your wrap-up question here. So if you could hop in the Wayback Machine and go back to 2015 and talk to younger Lid Shaw from 2015, who's just about to start his new recording studio, Rockstars podcast, what would you tell him?
1: Okay. So this is a great question. And I did think about the answer for this, uh, because there's all kinds of things that you can go back and tell yourself at different stages in life. But for me, related to the podcast itself, the the thing that I would go back and do differently if I could is I would do my lead magnet differently. So if you don't know what a lead magnet is yet, you are going to want to know. And what it is is it pertains to building and growing your email list. So know this about starting anything that's related to the online world. Your email list is gold. That's where your ability to earn an income from what you do lives and resides. And so you want to be very, very attentive and, and careful about how you build and grow that email list. And you want to grow it as fast as you can. You want it to be a really high quality email list. You want to um, really build up a good relationship through it with your subscribers and so I knew that I needed to make a lead magnet and a lead magnet is basically something that you're giving away free to your subscribers you're telling them hey go get my blah blah blah
0: mixed master bundle
1: yeah in my case it's the mixed master bundle and so I was making videos um, and I for YouTube at the time and I said uh, just Extemporaneously, in the moment, off the top of my head, I was like, "Go pick up my mix master bundle." <laughs> I just said that I hadn't even thought about it ahead of time, and so then afterwards, I was like, "Oh well, I guess I better call my mix, you know, my lead template, the mix master bundle." So that's what it's been ever since. And then when I created it, what I did is I created, you know, a pretty in-depth mix free mixing course uh, where it's like you know a series of five videos. And I really show uh, a a bunch of the basics of how to set up and create a mix that sounds loud and proud and professional um, using nothing but free plugins and stock plugins inside of Pro Tools. And so, so I made this thing, and it was great. But one of the lessons I learned later on was that it was it was almost too much of an ask for most people. Like. It's gr- it's a great thing to give away, and it's a great um, free lead magnet and teaching, you know, product. But you can you got to think even smaller than that when you start out. So you want to think about, I guess, a way to s- describe it is it's as if I asked somebody on a third date right away at the beginning. So when you start out your podcast, you want to create something that's so simple and so such a small commitment. That people will think, oh, sure, I'll I'll take that. That sounds great. So it's much easier to create something like a PDF or a list of resources or something you can print out that you can keep. Um, you know, it's a reference guide, something really simple and easy for people to digest. Because when people go get this first thing and they sign up for your email list, they're really at the beginning of a process. You know, they're they're at the early stages of something, and they might just be looking for a really simple solution. To whatever their challenge or their problem is so that that for me would be the thing i'd go back and do differently i think i probably um could have offered something that was just like you know 10 tips for doing a quick mix you know a list of 10 steps for getting a pro mix and that's it yeah and then from there i probably could have offered what i was giving away for free as a really low price um product or course you know a ten dollar course, something something really low level that people go like, oh, that sounds great. You know, and go do it. And that probably would have been a, a smarter framework for the business aspect of, of doing the podcast and the teaching.
0: I think that's a, a fantastic piece of advice there. And Lidge, there's been so much incredible information and advice that you've shared with me and, and with my listeners today on on Who Makes a Podcast. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Did we miss anything that you wanted to cover?
1: Yes, I just want to encourage your listeners as you're thinking about starting a podcast that when you inevitably get to that question you ask yourself of, I want to do this thing, but there's already so many of them out there, just you can cross that worry right off your list because there are not so many podcasts. Out there like the one you're about to start, because there's only one of you. And so you're going to bring your own individual personality to your show and the way that you do it and your voice and who you are is the thing that people are going to connect with when they listen to your podcast. So if you are passionate about something, if you love it, if you if it's the thing that you want to do every day, even if it was your day off, then it's a perfect topic for you to create a podcast around and you can build an online business helping to teach other people how to do that thing that you love.
0: I love that. That is a, a fantastic way to end this episode. Where can people find you? Where do you want to send people?
1: Um, well, if you'd like to check out my podcast, you can go to recordingstudiorockstars.com and listen to the podcast there. Um, this also links over to my academy where I've got courses on recording mixing and mastering music, as well as my free uh, course for that called mixmasterbundle.com. So you could just go right there if you want. And then if you want to check out my studio here in Nashville, you can go to thetoyboxstudio.com. And perhaps by the time this comes out, I will have revamped my website to show the new studio upgrades that we've done. But in the meantime, if I haven't, you're going to see the, that cool old console <laughs> and you're going to see stereo sessions, videos, and all kinds of cool, fun stuff there.
0: Awesome. Lidge, thank you so much for hopping on with me. I really, really appreciate it. This has been a wonderful conversation. So I thank you.
1: Thank you, Chris, man. It's been a pleasure to hang out with you. And thanks to all your listeners. Do you, have you decided how you're going to refer to your listeners?
0: I have not. Um, as, as of right now, they are listeners. podcasters. I need, I need a a catchy name. The who makesers. The who makesers.
1: Yeah. (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening, everybody.
0: That was my conversation with Lidge Shaw, recording engineer, music producer, and host of the highly successful podcast, Recording Studio Rockstars, which can be found on all of the major podcast networks. You can find Lidge at recordingstudiorockstars.com and the Toyboxstudio.com. My name is Chris Cookley, and you can find me at whomakesapodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, it would be an enormous help if you shared it with your friends or left a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. It helps other podcast lovers find the show, and it really does make a difference. And if you host a podcast and would like to be my next guest on Who Makes a Podcast, let me know. Go to whomakesapodcast.com guest and tell me about your show. This is Who Makes a Podcast. I'll be back next time with another conversation with another incredible podcast host. Thanks for listening.